You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast, from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, SpyCast brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns about SpyCast, or if you want to suggest someone who might be a good future guest, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Also, if you like what you hear, and even if you don't, please take a minute and review us on iTunes or whatever platform you might be listening. We're always looking for ways to make SpyCast better, and you can help. We'd like to thank our friends at Movement, Casper, and ZipRecruiter for their continued support of SpyCast. I'll tell you more about these great companies later, but first, let's meet our guest. So we're joined today by John Seifer, who retired in 2014 after a 20-year career in the Central Intelligence Agency's National Clandestine Service. At the time of his retirement, he was a member of the CIA's Senior Intelligence Service. He served multiple overseas tours as Chief of Station and Deputy Chief of Station in Europe, Asia, Southeast Asia, the Balkans, and South Asia. And he's a recipient of the agency's Distinguished Career Intelligence Medal. Welcome, John. Thank you for taking the time to talk to us here at SpyCast. Thank you. My pleasure. I'm excited to be here. So you spent almost three decades uh, in the clandestine service. and, and, and was this something you planned? I mean, did you grow up wanting to be a, I'm going to put air quotes around the word spy as it's used uh, in the vernacular? I mean, this is something that you, you wanted to be when you were a kid, or did you, what was a path to the agency? Uh, interesting. No, I, I, didn't, I didn't want to be this. Because I didn't know much about it, obviously. Uh, I grew up in a small town, so I didn't have a great awareness of you know, specific agencies and that type of thing. But my father was a history professor and my mother was a teacher. And so I was always interested in history and politics and sort of my mother was a big John F. Kennedy fan. And so that whole world of wanting to do service, being involved in in history and and, in politics and the things that make things work and Cold War. So I was always interested in that and studied in that area. So I I was always drawn towards some sort of government service. And it was only later as, as I went to school and graduate school that interest in the CIA or intelligence field was more realistic. So you, you served later on as a lead instructor at the CIA's clandestine training school that mm-hmm. vernacular common is the farm. <laughs> um, so let me, you saw people coming in off the streets and, and or relatively off the streets and, and, and what their backgrounds were was something that you understood. So for people out there who want to be doing this as a career, uh, what, what advice, what should people out there be doing, be thinking, be it, things have changed, obviously, but your your career spanned enough time uh, that you, you were able to see, you know, the different types of people coming into CIA. So is there a good piece of advice that you could give those out <laughs> I don't there? there? I don't know if there's specific advice. I would say um, curiosity, um, interest. Actually, I was recently at the OSS dinner that they do every year, and, and 
I don't know how many times people talk about OSS veterans and special operators as people who have a PhD but also could win a bar fight. Yeah. And so, in a sense, the type of people who are interested in CIA and seem to do well, and, and when I was teaching at the farm, are, are people who are both very interested in issues they want to, you know, to learn about the places they're going, they're interested in their government, but they're also you know, people of action. They want to do something rather than just you know, you know, study it or something like that. So when I was there too, it was interesting because we went through a phase where we, the agency became very popular, much more popular in the late 90s and, and early 2000s, and certainly after 9-11, a lot of people wanted to come in. It, it was very easy for the agency to take the cream of the crop, right. you know, Harvard lawyers and all this type of thing. And, What's interesting is you want really bright people, but you also want people who have a sense, you know, of themselves in space. You know, you have to be able to see surveillance if you're going to be doing. You need to have be able to develop really close relationships and have a, a sense of how you come across in your interactions with others and build trust. So smarts and interest is one thing, but also some of those just what we would call common sense on the street kind of things that sort of mix that. That makes it work. Well, I want to ask you. I mean, you really have to be well-rounded, I guess. Is you know, you know, not just the the intellect, you know, but you need to actually have the common sense. And and, and I'm wondering if this matters even more in the changing threat environment of the world, right? I mean, talk about after 9/11, they're looking for everybody to do CT work, everyone bringing in counterterrorism work, you know. But you go to your career, you probably went from the Soviet threat being the most <laughs> prominent to kind of in the 1990s, where the Middle Eastern nations and Iraq and others to terrorism. And now we're North Korea, China, back to Russia. If you joined CIA tomorrow and spent 30 years there, the, the primary threat is probably going to change five or six times while you're there. Well, that's why I think the sort of love of learning and, and, and the love of challenge is, is part of it, right? So um, one of the things that I really liked about it, when I first came in, I thought I was going to be an analyst, and I was going to then go get a PhD and, and, and study but when I came in and started to get involved in clandestine service, one of the things that really appealed to me is, you know, if you're going to go to Russia, if you're going to go to Japan, if you're going to go, so it's almost like another master's degree, if you will. If you're going to go out to the Balkans, you're going to study the history, you're going to study the culture, you're going to read up, you're going to understand what the government needs, what are the top issues, so that when you're dealing with people out there, you know, you can quickly get in, develop those relationships, and they understand your thing. So it's very exciting to be able to sort of, that, that learning piece of things. Well, I think people, certainly Hollywood, but people may not understand the kind of preparation that goes into just, you know, moving to a new station, moving to a new area of the world, you know, and, and the analysts get all the credit for being the eggheads. Uh, but operations, if you're not someone that fully understands the environment that you're, you're moving into, you're toast. I mean, that, that seems like the, the no-brainer, but it's not something I think a lot of people think about. No, I think that's true. In fact, I know some analysts and ambassadors overseas that have talked about people like you mentioned earlier, Burton Gerber, who was one of the sort of the famous spies who worked in Moscow and a senior leader in the agency. I've heard a number of people, ambassadors and others, talk about him as perhaps the best analyst of European politics they've ever met. So he and he was an operator, as a clandestine operator. So um, to be good at it, you have to write well, you have to know the issues, because essentially, um, spying and stealing secrets. It, it's not just a game where you try to meet people and take whatever you can. You only need to get the things that the U.S. government cannot get any other way. Right. And therefore, you need to really have a fine sense of what the government knows, what the government needs to know, and know the country you're in well enough so that you know how to actually go after that. Well, you know, people talk about the five eyes, and they talk about our relationships with other countries. 
And a lot of times the focus is on what information do we share? And arguably the most secret information we may share, particularly with our closest allies, is not what we know, it's what we don't know. Mm -hmm. It's the gaps in our intelligence. To me, that seems to be one of the most important things you can have going overseas, is knowing what the primary intelligence target might be to fill those gaps. Right, it's all about finding the gaps and providing the information that can't be gotten any other way. And I think people who don't, who don't work in the business or, or, or you know, don't pay attention to, to, to this type of work, which is normal, you, want, you don't want people paying attention to this type of work, is that how much we get from working with, with, with allies and friends overseas. And in fact, in many places, we even, we even have relationships with countries that we're not as friendly with. So the CIA chief in X country is also often talking to their internal security people and, and sharing the kind of information on, on issues that overlap. But like you said, you know, if we're going to say work with the British, for example, if we can let them know areas where we're strong and where we're weak, they can sometimes fill those gaps and do things that we can't do. They have different authorities. Mm -hmm. they have, they're in different places. They have different histories and cultures in different right. in countries. I mean, we look at places like North Korea and stuff. Now, there's no Americans there. There's no American embassy. For us to have the knowledge of, of, of what makes those people tick, we need other countries who have access there to tell us those things. Well, it's like some of the relationships historically. As a historian, you look at some of the relationships in Africa and in places in East Asia where the United States really hasn't had a traditional historical role, but some of our allies have. Mm -hmm. You know, whether it's the French or the British as colonial powers, they may have the on-the-ground relationships still that we just haven't established yet. Well, and for example, the Australians and a lot of the Pacific Islands and um, you know, we're learning that the Chinese are, are moving heavily into Africa, moving into those Pacific Islands. Um, those are places that we just, yeah, we don't have those relationships where, say, the Australians mm -hmm. may or, or, or other partners, Koreans or others, may have a access to those kind of things. So that's a critical part of what we do. So, yes, we have people on the ground trying to steal the secrets that we need, but we also work with partners to help us do that. So I, I was a bit coy in your introduction about exactly where you served as a station <laughs> chief. Uh, but I believe at least one of those stations has been made public. Uh, you've openly written about being one of them. But let me ask you in a general sense, sure. what are you allowed to say about what you did? I mean, and we're talking like the inside baseball side, right? When you, you weren't just a mid-level analyst. You weren't just a clandestine officer overseas. You were a station chief multiple places. So at the level you got to at the senior leadership at CIA, what are you allowed to say and what can't you say? Well, it's interesting, and I, and I think uh, I credit General Hayden and some others for doing this because, it, you know, years ago when you did a career in the CIA, you retired and you pretty much kept quiet. And there's still people who believe that that, that should be the case, and I, I respect that very much. However, I think um, some of our leadership has realized that, you know, part of our obligation is to sort of educate the people that we work for, the public, on the kind of things we do. So that at the end of our career, we have a choice of uh, lifting our cover to say that we worked at CIA. So most of my career I didn't say I worked mm -hmm. at CIA. If I was getting a new house or a mortgage or talking to friends, um, you know, I didn't say I was a clandestine officer at the CIA. But as I retired, I was able to pull back my cover and there's some specific rules about what you can talk about and not talk about. Um, for example, on my resume, I can say in general the places that I was station chief or deputy chief and the issues that I worked on, but I can't say specifically that I was chief in this place or, or that place. And it's not clear to a lot of us exactly why that is, because in many ways, if you just, nowadays you Google it, you can find out what countries we worked in. But, but more importantly, 
and I think people learn this as they move up and they start to deal with liaison services and, and companies and uh, other Americans. What we're protecting is specific sources and methods. Right. So, right, if I was in Moscow, what I, what I can't talk about absolutely is people who risk their lives to spy for us in an incredibly dangerous place like that where they put a, a bullet in the back of your head if they catch you. But I can talk about um, the kind of work we do there, the way we do that work in general, maybe some specifics that we'd leave out. Um, also, you know, as a CI historian, you understand there's a tremendous amount of stuff already in the public literature. And, you know, we try to read and see what those things are. So I have a knowledge of what's already out there so that I can give a sense of what, 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 what happened, what makes sense, put it in perspective for others, give it context, without having to say that, you know, you know Valeri was a spy for us and gave us mm -hmm. this information. Um, so there is quite a bit that we can talk about because I can talk about the, the way we do work, um, the things that are important to us, the, the culture there, the type of things that matter. And, you know, in this charged partisan atmosphere we're in now, there's so much misunderstanding right. of the deep state or what the CIA does or what intelligence does or, you know, how our institutions work. And I think it's important to give people sort of a sense of, of that culture and, and why we do the things we do and, and that we're careful in the things that we do and follow the law. Have some of the rules changed as people have become more familiar with the world of intelligence? I mean, since 9-11... The American public not only has become more interested, but certainly more familiar. I mean, you think of the NSA as a good example of this, right? right? No such agency. Uh, you know, there's movies made about it. It's still a little hinky, but now everyone knows about the NSA. And it's not just because of Snowden. It's because people like Mike Hayden and others right. have come out and talked about it. Is, do you think that was an impetus for trying to tweak some of the rules and make the have the ability like for yourself to come out and talk a little bit more about what you did? I think so, and I think it's just a matter of, of modernity. I think there's more information out there. There's more books out there. It's very easy for people, you know, when things are secret, people can make stuff up in their head, and they can go, as Mike Hayden would say, to the dark corner of the room. Um, for people to talk about what they're doing and, and openly talk about it, 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 it's being more honest with the public about the kind of stuff we're doing. I mean, I came in the agency in, in the 80s, so I missed a lot of the real tough things where the agency went through in the 1970s where there was a lot of distrust post-Nixon era, um, the church committee, things that the agency might be up to, some concerns that they were involved in domestic activity and things like that. Um, I think the agency learned the hard way by just shutting up. People assume the worst. And so I, I think it's been an effort to try to educate the public as much as we can. There's always going to be conspiracy theorists and there's always going to be people who think we're up to no good. But if you take time to see what people are saying and read and learn about it, you learn that it's a pretty um, restricted, you know, you know, lots of lawyers yeah. following, you know, legal rules, uh, ethics. Um, you know, if we tried to just steal everything we could, we'd cause all kinds of <laughs> problems domestically. So we have to work very closely with partners in, you know, the State Department and our diplomatic corps and the military and these type of things. So we're an institution like mm -hmm. any other government institution. But but I think there is a value in now and being a little bit more open about what we do. There's still a lot of mystery about what happens at a CIA station overseas, mm -hmm. and, and particularly since it's been in movies and TV recently, um, where there's about 50 different versions uh, from Hollywood about what a CIA station looks like. So let me ask you a, a bit of a tongue-in-cheek question, but how much of it is super sexy like in the movies, and how much of it is essentially the TV version 
of the office, CIA. <laughs> uh, it, it, it's bureaucracy, right? I mean, it, it's, it's absolutely bureaucracy. Yeah. It's absolutely bureaucracy, and a station can be anything from one person overseas in an embassy or in an office to, you know, a large group of people. You can guess now in a place like, say, Afghanistan or Iraq, with a war zone of how many people that are that are both collecting intelligence for the U.S. government and working with the military and these type of things. So, um, yeah, there's specific rules about how we work. Oftentimes in the country we work in, we work under the ambassador's authority. Uh, the, the ambassador is kept informed in general about the type of issues we're doing. We're, we're not uh, operating rogue or, or out there. We're also, everything we're doing, uh, Just it's been very interesting for me as I've moved into the private sector to see how little people write things down. The agency very much, everything we're doing, we're documenting, we're writing it down, we're sending it to our headquarters, it's going so that, that and they're providing feedback and information to help us with our operations. So it's, so the office part of it, as you mentioned, is very much, yes, you go out in the street, yes, you spend a lot of time doing mildly sexy things, meeting really important people, um, giving a lot of authority to, cl to collect intelligence. But, but you're also going to come back to that office and you're going to write. You're going to write a lot. And, you know, some people don't like that. You need to be able to, to do that or you're not an effective intelligence officer. You might be the, the most coy and cool guy on the street that can develop relationships and, and, and have people share things with you. But if you can't uh, do the bureaucratic piece of that, write things, make sure you're, you know, you're spending money properly, all those type of things, you're not going to succeed. And the popular perception of this is that a CIA station or a chief of station is essentially running his or her own little fiefdom. That there, there's kind of, God, that's and nice. you've already, you've already, I know, <laughs> if only, right? Yeah. Um, you've already hinted at this: the idea of working through different government agencies, whether it's the ambassador or the military mm -hmm. attaché, perhaps. Uh, and, and American policy comes down to whatever embassy you're in. And how much of it is a joint conversation about, is this a diplomatic role? Is this a CIA role? Is this a military attache role? Is this a, should USAID be doing this and not the CIA? Right. How much of those conversations are happening? Well, those conversations are happening all the time. And in, in sort of in the, in the theoretical sense, and more, actually more than the theoretical sense, the administration should, does, should do every year, doesn't do every year, sort of the foreign policy of the United States. They put together a paper saying these are, the, these are the things that we want to go after in each country. These are the issues that are important to us. This is what we believe we need to know to do our foreign policy. In the process of that, that is then pushed out to different agencies for the Defense Department to do one piece of this, for the intelligence agencies to do one piece, for the diplomatic services to do one piece. There's an actual document that comes out of that for intelligence collectors and that includes diplomats and State Department people who are overseas talking to foreigners as well, called the National Intelligence Priorities Framework, I think it's called, NIP if we call it. So when I'm overseas, say I'm in uh, India, there's going to be a series of things that the U.S. government says they want to accomplish in South Asia and with India uh, and in the United Nations, and there's a certain amount of stuff, that information that they need from India. That, that document will say, State Department, we need you to do this piece of this, Defense Department and, and working with you know, Indian military, for example, we need you to do this piece. CIA or NSA, these are the pieces that we need you to collect. So that guidance comes to each station and each station chief. And that station chief is then talking to the ambassador, talking to the, the defense attache there to say, to make it clear that, you know, what is our lane? What are we trying to do so that we're not 
um, causing problems with the type of thing that work that they're doing so that you know in theory there's an alignment through the government so that everybody's collecting and doing the things they need to do back into the administration so that you know, US, US foreign policy is aligned and working together. We'll have more with John in a moment, but let me take a minute to tell you about Movement. Movement Watches, spelled MVMT but pronounced Movement, was founded on the belief that style shouldn't break the bank. The watchmaker's goal is to change the way consumers think about fashion by offering high-quality, minimalist products at revolutionary prices. With over 1 million watches sold to customers in over 160 countries around the world, Movement Watches has solidified itself as the world's fastest-growing watch company. Look, the story of this company's beginning is pretty amazing. And as someone who has worked to use word of mouth and social media to build SpyCast brand, I really took to this story. In 2013, two watch enthusiasts dropped out of college with the dream of reinventing the watch industry. Tired of big brand markups, the duo set out to create a direct consumer model. And since 2013, they've really come far. The watches are gorgeous, both men's and women's watches. I told you this before, but when I went on their website to check out the watches, a huge argument broke out in my office about which one looked the best. And even though I eventually would choose a single watch, there are so many that I would love to have. And the great part is, if I want another one, I can afford it. Movement watches start at just $95. At a department store, you're looking at $400 to $500 bucks for a watch of this quality. Movement figured out by the selling online, they were able to cut out the middleman and retail markup, providing us the best possible price. Classic design, quality construction, and stylized minimalism. And again, over 1 million watches sold in over 160 countries. So you get 15% off today with free shipping and free returns by going to movement.com slash spycast. That's mvmt.com slash spycast. The watch I have is a really clean design. Seriously, I've been getting compliments ever since I put it on. So now is the time to step up your watch game. Go to movement.com slash spycast and join the movement. Let me ask you, what was your management style? I assume being a chief of station is much in the same vein as management elsewhere, where you have to know when to delegate and trust subordinates and when you actually need to get directly involved. Did you have a particular management style that you, you like to use with your subordinates? Well, I think I was lucky in the sense that I remember when I first came into the agency out of graduate school. Uh, and I remember that first day of coming in by the security officer and having the security officer say to me, he looking at me and saying, EOD? And I looked at him and I'm like, I have no idea what you just said. He said, EOD? And I'm like, again, I'm like, push. It's a term, enter on duty. So I mean, this is this your first day? It was his way of saying that. And eventually you learn that a lot of the lingo and the culture that the agency grew up with comes from sort of the Navy and the way the Navy would work. And I've learned over the years now, you know, the Army tends to be very planning oriented and detail oriented, whereas the Navy grew up historically, you know, sending Admiral Dewey or someone, giving him general guidance, sending him to the Philippines or to Japan or what have you, and having him accomplish what the government's you know, mission was and coming back several years later to report on that. So it's like giving a, an amazing amount of authority to somebody to go out and, and do the work of it. So I think the agency in the, sort of lives under that culture so that it is indeed true as you're a station chief overseas, you do have quite a bit of authority, you have quite a bit of flexibility to do the things you're doing. But at the same time, the agency and its work with other agencies, with State Department stuff is very centralized. So we are writing things, we're making sure that you know, nothing we're doing is, is sort of outside of the scope of what we're supposed to be doing back to our headquarters. And I, again, I found this as I work later in my career a lot with the FBI, is the FBI field offices tend to be, you know, they can do a lot of their own work because they're, you know, local 
and a lot of their stuff doesn't go back to their center, their headquarters. They can they can collect information and write things and do stuff that it isn't in their FBI headquarters back in Washington. Whereas in the, the agency is essentially most everything we do overseas. There, there's records of it in Washington. So when you when you were running operations, I'm making, I'm making it sound pretty boring. Yeah, no, no, no. Yeah, let, me, <laughs> let me ask a question a little more specific because I, this is again I'm trying to get inside baseball as much as we can here. When sure. you're when you're when you have an operation, whether it comes down from on high or it's something that you're working with the local ambassador or something, um, you have a staff under you, especially if you're in one of the larger stations. Mm-hmm. Um, how much are you involved in the day-to-day on the street meeting with with assets versus sending out someone else to do it as chief or deputy So as chief. chief, okay. So, again, it sort of depends. Like I said, we'll have people who are chief because you have you know, a very small place, right. and they may be the people who are actually on the street collecting information and writing that information up. If you're in a larger place, um, there's more of those executive leadership skills as opposed to, you know, you know, in the weeds, you know, you're holding meetings. You're making. You have branch chiefs that report to you. Um, you're giving just general guidance on the type of things you want. Now, the agency tends to be more than something as massive, say, as the as the, as the military or whatever. Um, a station chief in most places is pretty aware aware of the, the key operations, the key agents that are being met, who's doing it, and how to make sure. Because we are very you know, the one thing about spying that's that's really critical that you sort of learn drilled into early on is you have to be right 100% of the time. You can't, you know, that agent's life, that person who's providing perhaps a danger to themselves, information to the U.S. government, is essentially stealing from their, they're committing treason against their, their country. If they're caught, they can at least, they at least go to jail, they at least lose their job, in some countries they lose their life. And so every time you meet that person, you have to have prepared thought through what are the risks um, as I go out to meet that person if I happen to not be paying attention and I'm followed by the local security service and they lead I lead that person to meet that that agent that's that one time right. that happens one time you're sloppy that person is done and our goal is to, is to develop those relationships and have them in place for a long time so there is a lot of detail work and you know working with young officers you know as 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 you have more experience to, to sit down with them and say, okay, let's talk about, you know, this person that you're developing a relationship. Let's talk about this agent that you're handling. Tell me about, you know, how you're doing it. Tell me about how you go about your day. Tell me about how you, you know, your knowledge of the city, your knowledge of the information. So, the, so even at a senior level, you can get quite into the weeds and quite mm-hmm. detailed on it. But at the same time, you have to give sort of general guidance and, 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 and maintain that relationship with the, with the ambassador and other seniors, say, in an embassy, right. if that's where you happen to be working. In, in your answer, you alluded to surveillance and counterintelligence. I want to ask it because we, we'll have people here in Washington, D.C. come in from some foreign embassy, and they'll, they'll introduce themselves as the second deputy agricultural attache and <laughs> you know, the, the minister of shrubbery. And you, it's clear, <laughs> again, I'm not an FBI counterintelligence officer, but it's clear from the wa- minute they walk in the door that they're, they're actually working intel. How much do you think the local population, the local counterintelligence people and where you were stationed, how much do they tend to know who you were or at least suspect? I mean, that, and that, not you specifically, but also right. the CIA in general. Right, right. So by the time you're in most places that you've, you've, you've moved up through your career to be maybe a chief of station or deputy chief of station, oftentimes we're declared, which means we actually go to the local service and say, I'm the local CIA station chief. I want to work with you on a variety of areas of 
you know, common interest. But under me may be people who are undercover who are obviously not going to be known to that local service that, that may be stealing from that same service, which just can be a, a, a very odd sort of issue. Um, the one thing, for example, those of us have been in places like Moscow and have worked against host, what we call hostile services who are following us all the time and have listening devices and videos in our house, and so we're constantly aware of, of scrutiny against us, um, is that we, as we teach young officers, is not to count on that cover, right? If you're saying you're the agriculture attache, that by no means means the locals are going to say, well, let's not pay attention to that, right. that guy. Um, I tend to think that, say, let's, let's use an embassy as another example, that you know, there's a lot of local hires that work in that embassy, and there's just stuff about CIA people that might be, their, their personalities are a little bit different, or maybe the person that was the agriculture attache before them you know, was less careful and became known to be the CIA person. So when you replace them, you may think your cover and the way you're behaving is perfectly within, within role. Everybody there suspects that you're the CIA person. So... Um, whereas cover can protect against sort of mild threats and um, you know, help us live and stay in, in these countries overseas, it is not a protection against hostile or even less hostile counterintelligence services. We, we tend to think they can figure that out, that out pretty quickly. People in the emb- locals in the embassy can tend to figure it out pretty quickly, and oftentimes they're reporting to the local services. So we say um, operations and meetings with our spies um, should be hidden, not disguised, all right? So you, right. and we learned this the hard way, and we can talk about, you know, you're an intelligence historian, and you look at the Penkovsky case, one of the famous cases is some of the operations to work with Penkovsky, they tried to disguise them. They would use the wife of the British intel guy, you know, with her kid, and have Penkovsky come up and, and share, you know, some candy with the kid, and they, that's where they would exchange secret information. They were disguising it. The local surveillance was around, and they were supposed to witness that and say, oh, that's a very normal thing. That's not nefarious. That, in that sense, their cover protected. But what the British didn't know was the Russians knew that the, they were British secret intelligence service people so that they didn't look at this as not... They looked at it as nefarious, and they were able to figure out what it was. So in that sense, this person, they thought their cover protected them. Their cover did not protect them. Whereas if that same meeting was done hidden so that there's no way a surveillance or someone watching could see it, that would have saved that relationship, that would have saved that case. So as a, if you understand a, what I'm yeah, saying. Yeah, absolutely. So as a former chief and a former farm instructor, SDR, surveillance detection runs, are like paramount, essentially. I mean, it's getting black is the key to everything. It, it's, it's, it's absolutely the key to everything, and, there, and you know, it can... Like anything, the more you get into it, the more sophisticated and complicated it can be. But yes, what we say is black means there's you know 100% for sure. Like I said, you have to be 100% right. You know 100% sure that when you meet that person who's spying for you, nobody else can witness it, know it, see it, listen in on it. And so uh, there's a long process to make sure that happens. So you can't be under surveillance. Like You can't right. be in a room that might have, be bugged. You can't you know, after that meeting, the person can't walk out of that room and be seen by locals who could report what's happening there. So that that's a critical thing. And as a former instructor, it's funny, like I see with my own children, nowadays people are so tied to their GPS and their phones and, you know, and how they travel. I mean, one of the skills that, you know, a good case officer has to have is 
intense knowledge of the of their city of where they are so that you know this ability to know where you are and where surveillance might be and, and to mani- either to manip- manipulate them or to know that you're clean that means having just an incredible spatial knowledge of of where you are nowadays people are so tied to listening to the phone to tell them where to go I, I'm nervous that they're losing some of that that skill set and obviously it, it, as you know again as a, as a intelligence historian is tying yourself to technology. Technology can be a weakness in and of itself. It may be a way that you could be exploited. Well, I was going to ask as a follow-up question, is is in the last three decades, uh, the transformation of technology, as we all know, has been extraordinary. <laughs> Where does this fall on the kind of spy counter, spy pendulum? Does it make it easier for the CI people, the, the, the spy hunters, or does it does it give you as an operations officer a distinct advantage? In many ways, it's it, it, it's like the military. Over, if you follow the military over, over in, in wars, over history, there's like there's sometimes the offense has an advantage, and sometimes the defense has an advantage. And and you know, when when there's a new weapon, there becomes new ways to deal with that weapon. And it's the same thing in in a sense in the in, intelligence space. Is you know when new technology comes out, there on our side, there's there's ways to try to use that technology, and there's ways to try to really think about how that might be used against us. So it's a never-ending cycle of, of looking at what could be used against you and how can you mitigate that. Um, so it's funny, there was an arrest in the, of an, um, an American who was claimed to be spying in Moscow. The Russians arrested him. And it was in the newspapers here, and it showed that when he was out, he had a, he had a map, just a paper map and a, f- a few other things. And there was a number of stories saying how ridiculous this is that this person didn't have their cell phone and didn't have you know this fancy technology well in our world we're like that's crazy those things are the are the are the risk to you you know you can track people's cars with tech you can track people's cell phones anything that's that's electronic can be tracked so so in some ways stepping back totally being devoid of electronic things of using sort of your knowledge of the area your wits and things uh, is is a more safe way to go as you're trying to protect yourself. So it's a non it's a nonstop. I can I can guarantee people now that are in training and in counterintelligence are are looking at all these things and how they could be used against us and trying to find ways to uh, to avoid them or to get around them. And it just right. doesn't stop. You can't. And 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 the other side knows that too. Again, if you go back to some of those history, Moscow, Penkovsky, and Popov. We would use a certain, we would use you know, micro dots or something like this, and, or we would meet people in a certain way. Once the Russians, you know, through a variety of means, arrested someone or a case went bad, they would learn how we operated. Right. They would then put means in place to make sure that they cover that and they, could, they don't get fooled again. We, in turn, have to change the way we're doing business or we're going to get caught. And so it's a nonstop effort. We'll have more of John Cipher in just one minute, but let me take a moment to tell you about Casper. Casper is a sleep brand that continues to revolutionize its line of products to create an exceptionally comfortable sleep experience one night at a time. Casper is designed by humans for humans. Their mattresses are perfectly designed for engineering to soothe and cradle your natural geometry. Look, you spend one-third of your life sleeping, so you should be comfortable. And Casper mattresses provide all the support the human body needs in all the right places. Casper means quality. Casper brand mattresses combine multiple supportive memory foams for a quality sleep surface with just the right amounts of both sink and bounce. Breathable design helps you sleep cool and regulates your body temperature throughout the night. 
and they're designed, developed, and assembled here in the United States. Look, convenience is always key. And Casper can keep their prices affordable because they cut out the middleman and sell directly to the consumer with no hassle returns if you're not completely satisfied. Delivered right to your door in a small, how-do-they-do-that size box with free shipping and returns in the United States and Canada. You can be sure of your purchase with Casper's 100-night risk-free sleep-on-it trial. So start sleeping ahead of the curve with Casper. Get $50 towards any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com slash spycast and using the promo code spycast at checkout. That's casper.com slash spycast and use the promo code spycast at checkout. Terms and conditions apply. And let me ask you a specific question about um, over your career, the CIA has gone through multiple transition periods, mm-hmm. whether it's from the Cold War to the lean years of the 1990s to the post 9-11 world now refocusing somewhat on state actors. But there's also been a transition in form and function. There's been a lot of internal changes, everything from fusion centers to a movement to counterterrorism roles, things like forward deploying analysts, which wasn't necessarily done back in the day. Um, what are the ones that you think have really worked, and what are the ones that you think not so much? All right, let me think about that. Well, I mean, it's funny. I, I at home on my desk, I have uh, a couple rocks that sort of what I think of are like sort of bookends to my career. So I have a I have a big chunk of the Berlin Wall from you know having gone to East Germany and worked on you know it represents sort of me to work on the Cold War and against the Soviet Union. And the other end, I have a big brick from Bin Laden's house talking about sort of the terrorism type of work we did. And the one thing the CIA always has to do is it has to be involved in and providing, providing benefit to the administration no matter what the key issue of the day is, right? So if it's terrorism, we need to, play, we need to, we need to do what we need to do to get the information to the White House or to, or to fight against that threat. If it's, if it's counterintelligence and working against the Soviet Union, that's the focus we need to have. Um, so there, there's been a, a variety of changes. The, the big one, if you sort of, you again as a historian over time, um, is I think from a lot of the mistakes that were made in the 50s and 60s about how we sort of handled agents, uh, the asset validation system, our very specific means of as you meet a new person and you're going to ask that person to uh, you know, do something that could be potentially very dangerous for them to provide information, to steal secrets from their government, um, we really need to understand that person. We need to understand what makes them tick. We need to understand that that person is not being sent to us to deceive us or fool us. And so there's a, there's a very sophisticated process now, and there wasn't years ago, um, to try to f- make sure that that person is who they say they are, they have access to the things that they say they have access to, that it's not being, we say, run against us to try to you know, do strategic deception. So that's been a big one for me. The other big success is, indeed, over the years, like you said, analysts to the field, um, much more um, direct work with the military. I mean, there's a lot of talk in Af- Afghanistan and places in the Pakistan about you know JSOC and the military working with agency officers. Mm-hmm. I think those efforts to pull things together. For me, it was um, I worked on a lot on counterespionage cases involving the Hanson and Ames arrests. Um, we had FBI officers, you know, working in our with us. Those type of things. Once you develop that, those synergies between other agencies and other skill sets, whether it be analysts or FBI or military, I think that's worked for the most part to the great benefit of, of the U.S. Let me ask you, I think people may not understand the, the danger in a, in a dangle, and, and not only from a disinformation perspective, but also 
you look at CT and things like in coast Afghanistan, right? right? The idea of, uh, you know, one of the, the best ways to slow down uh, collection uh, is to essentially throw a monkey wrench in all the gears by throwing a dangle at somebody. And over, you don't have to get specific because I know you can't, um, but can you talk a little bit about that worry yeah. and how, how you, you talk to people at the farm about it and how you had senior leadership, you had conversations about it. You know, what can that possibly do uh, to derail any kind of good operation? Oh, it can be. So we look back, I talked about this asset validation system, trying to prove so that we're really confident with what we have when we're talking to someone. Um, as a historian, you go back, you look at Cuba, for example, and East Germany, as we tried to collect information on those those really tightly police state communist states, if we look back, a great majority, if not maybe in some places, all of the people that we were meeting, it turned out were either sent to us or given to us or controlled by the, or we met with but eventually became controlled by the local service. So, you know, at key times we had to understand what was happening in Germany. We didn't, they, they had us. The, the information that they were feeding us was a strategic disinformation or, or, or aiming us in the wrong directions. You know, thank God we didn't go to war with either of those countries. It could have been really bad for us. You then mentioned talking about how this then worked in the counterterrorism space where, where in a contact, a source, a potential agent for us that we thought could provide us information on core al-Qaeda, on you know, getting close to bin Laden and getting close to bin Laden's deputies. Um, that person was not validated and vetted properly, and um, that person was still working for al-Qaeda, pretending to be a spy for us, and at a key meeting in coast Afghanistan, you know, had a body-worn bomb and killed a, a large number of, of officers. So those things, yeah, they derail... They derail both strategically, they can set you in the wrong direction, and they make it harder. There's pro you wonder then when someone goes through that kind of just you know, incredible pain and, and danger handling a source, how many potentially good sources do we turn away because we're afraid that, right. that we might do this? And, and I can remember once George Tenet saying very much, there was, the Russians are you know, masters at this, and so you know, they understand that we're limited in the kind of work we do in Moscow, and that we're, you know, they're they're also afraid that we're gonna we're gonna get really important spies that really tell us about what's going on inside their their government. So from time to time, they will send people for us. You know, hopefully they try to make it look real so that we we bite and we start to meet with that person. Um, there has been times where people have come to us and provide information that just looks so good. And then we're supposed to meet them the next time, given on the circumstances. And and people and we sit would sit down and say, hey, this could be a deception. This could be an effort for the Russians to try to, at the next meeting, arrest one of our officers or or right. or, or, or stop us from doing what we're doing. But this information potentially, if this person has what they say and, and some of the information they have given us, uh, is so good that if we choose not to do it, the Russians win, right? So we're actually if we turn away someone who can provide us the keys to the kingdom, that's not a good thing either. And I can remember George Tennant saying, hey, listen, that's the price of doing business. I'm willing to send, I'm willing to take the hit of one of our officers getting thrown out getting, and causing a minor political flap. Because if someone like that comes to us with that kind of information and we turn them away, then the Russians have won. They, they've right. used that deception against us to make us hesitant, to make us scared. And so it's, 
so that's but in, in terrorism that's the other you, right. in that if this was a, that was a terrorist we probably would say no to that meeting or we'd try to find a mean to control that situation so that there was less danger there well I, I mean I think exactly at the Adolf Tolkachev case which was right before you got the CIA where we were very gun shy because of the Trigon and, and yeah, exactly. Marty Peterson and then it took Tolkachev many many times to try to reach out to, to CIA yeah. because we were worried about that happening again he was obviously a gold mine uh, you know absolutely and that to me seems not only do you give disinformation or you could potentially get people in trouble uh, but that whole gun shy idea of get burned once and you're less likely to be aggressive right. in the future moving forward right and, and you know and I think this one of the things why we talk public I think the American people need to know that we're going to be aggressive to get the information that our, our country needs and to try to protect our, our citizens so we're going to sometimes get burned, sometimes even potentially get hurt, but we need to do those kind of things. So in that case, I mean, that, that book, The Billion Dollar Spy, I think is a really good um, sort of discussion of that case. So, you know, Stansfield Turner was the new director. You know, politically, the agency had gone through some bumps, and, and so the notion that, you know, being aggressive and potentially, you know, getting in trouble or... or creating a problem made them a little bit gun shy now thank god mr tolkachev you know continued to push he was so um personally driven to do to do harm to his country that you know we turned him away several times and he kept coming back which is great but how many times are there people that we turn away and they don't come back let me let me shift gears a little bit to uh some more current events uh that i want to kind of get your thoughts on uh, one is one is leakers and I don't mean Snowden level I mean people who uh, in the current political climate whether it's this administration or the last administration um, have found ways to leak information out to the benefit of one political party or another and, and my fear is that people seem to be willing to accept these leaks if it kind of fits their preconceived or their political agendas or other things like that it seems to come from higher levels than has in the past. You know, it's not just a one-off, you know, Snowden, whatever you think about him or not. It's from people who are still working the agencies. They don't consider themselves committing treason, they're, but they're releasing information that would be considered classified otherwise. Yeah, this is a real danger. This is one of the dangers of, again, the hyper-partisan atmosphere now is it makes it easier for some people to justify doing things that they might understand are wrong in previous cases. So. You know, people see that the president is willing to, you know, say quite nasty things about, you know, our institutions or, or to, to uh, you know, place blame on, you know, institutions or, or professionals and or, you know, blame the deep state, meaning, meaning to them that, you know, they think that people in the FBI or CIA or military are, are leaking secrets. So there, it's, a very, it's, a, it's a very tough area because in many ways, I think traditionally, what was it, who was it that said, was it Lipman or somebody that said, you know, that... The ship of state is the one ship that tends to leak from the top. And um, I, th- I still think most of the type of leaks we're seeing are people who are briefed on either at the White House or briefed on information or lawyers that are tied to some of these investigations and cases that, that for a variety of reasons for, their, for their, the people that they're dealing with or whatever, that they tend to leak that information. I do not think that, that you know, serving CIA officers and FBI officers more con- sure about CIA officers are leaking as much as people tend to think they are. 
um, I tend to think, you know, at the end of the day, information is of no use unless it's shared. And so the information that CIA has has to be shared with the administration, has to be shared with the White House, has to be shared with the national security, mm. has to be shared with the military. So in that, that sense, there's sort of loss of, of control. Um, I also tend to think, you know, if we're going to get into the weeds on the whole sort of collusion Russia stuff, the, invest, the Mueller investigation, my take of the leaks is that those leaks are not the kind of information we would see if somebody at the heart of that investigation, either in CIA or FBI, was sharing information. It would look different. There's a lot, it would be much more detailed. It would be much more potentially damaging or, you know, or, you know we tend to see the stuff that's, that bubbles up that somebody might be briefed on so they have a piece of the puzzle, right? right? That doesn't mean, and I'm not trying to suggest that the CIA or the other people in the intelligence community you know, are totally clean and not leaking. But um, I don't think it's as bad of a problem from our institutions as a, a lot of other people say. Um, but, but certainly it's, it's a real problem because it's creating the impression that, that people in these institutions are partisan and don't right. care. And it's the one thing, you know, as I left, I think it's the strongest part of CIA culture is that it's a nonpartisan. We have a new director that can be put in by a president, but everybody else is essentially a professional who works up through the, the ranks. I worked in all, all over the world with friends that became so close, almost like family to me, and I had no idea what their politics were. I had no idea what party they belonged to, and it wasn't until I retired and was on Facebook that I often found out, like, holy crap, I had no <laughs> idea he was right-wing nut or left-wing nut. Or what. <laughs> so, I mean, that sort of working for the country and not for party was something that, that was really a strong culture, at least in CIA. And so when I see all these stories about leaks and it's for this party or that party or anti-president or for the president, it, it hurts me because I don't think that's the CIA, no. You've written extensively and you've been interviewed on something that's now back in the news, thought it died or at least spent, gone underground for a little while, and that's the Steele dossier, mm -hmm. the so-called Steele dossier. And it's, as we speak, uh, people on the Hill are yelling at each other about it um, because of who ordered it and who paid for it. We don't need to get too far into that. Um, first and foremost, I, I want it was opposition research, clearly. I mean, we know that now. It was originally paid for by a Republican opponent of Donald Trump and then picked up by somebody on the left. Mm -hmm. The DNC denies it was them. Clinton campaign denies it was them. Somebody paid for it. Well, I think there's, there was some reporting yesterday about DNC saying that they, or somebody saying that they had done it, but they paid for it, right? But the highest levels, no one, everyone's pointing fingers at everybody right. else. And right. opposition research goes on in every single political campaign ever made, and this seems like it's making it much easier to dismiss. But I want to kind of go in the weeds a little bit on it because you have in the past, mm -hmm. and I want to kind of go that that direction. Um, what is the ex agency, ex intel community, if there is one? Uh, their view on on this report because you've written that a lot of your colleagues or your former colleagues or friends uh, take this somewhat seriously. Maybe not every word, but take the reporting itself of of what Steele, a former uh, British intelligence officer, did very reporting and 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 for what reasons? It's, it has nothing to do with partisanship, I believe. Right. I want to be careful because I don't want to I don't want to attribute this to make it sound like you know all intelligence officers or all people who dealt with Russia feel the same way because I have some really good friends who really know what they're talking about who tend to look at it a little differently than I do. But 
most of the people that I know that served in Moscow that have dealt with the Russians, um, who work with the British on these kind of things, tend to look at a few things and are pretty consistent about what they, whether they believe the conclusion of it or not, um, tend to think. One of them is um, Orbis International, which is where Mr. Steele worked in Britain, is a, is a fairly credible organization. They had done work for the FBI on the FIFA probe, and, and, um, and Mr. Steele uh, was a professional intelligence officer for MI6, for the SIS, British SIS, um, worked in Moscow, worked on you know a number of countries overseas, as well as having sort of been the, the head Russia desk person in London, um, dealing with the Litvinenko case and other cases. So in a sense, he's credible. So, so whoever paid for it or not is irrelevant to the fact that, you know, as subcontractors, as a company whose reputation was on the line, um, they're fairly credible people. The other piece of the, of the information that appears credible to anybody who's worked in Russia is the description of how the Russians operate, right. think, the compromise, the effort to follow people and track them, and, you know, how, you know, the sort of thinking and operating of the Russian intelligence service. That piece also appears legitimate. But what's hard about this is, is the great majority of the work that's done by our clandestine service when you're overseas running spies, you might write a hundred pages of material on the source that you're trying to recruit or the person who's going to give you that information before you actually write an intelligence report of that information. So I need to know if, if, if I'm going to re recruit you, I want to know what makes you tick, why are you willing to work with me? Who are your subsources? What job are you in? What type of information do you have access to? Who trusts you? Who doesn't? Why would you think about giving me this information? I want to make a picture around you so that when you tell me a piece of information, I have a sense of whether how, how much I can trust or validate the information and, and, and those subsources and where it's coming from. What we don't know from the Steele document is we have, those are, those are, um, we look to us like raw intelligence right. reports. So Mr. Steele would go to his source and he'd say, source A told me this and source B told me that. And that's, that's exactly how our intelligence goes. Those intelligence reports then go into a larger cauldron where our analysts in Washington or sometimes in the field will then put it together with other information. They'll ask a series of questions. We'll be able to try to test it against other sources, against information that's out there to see whether it's credible and then and then put together questions to go back to that source. So and that's what's not part of the steel dossier, that's what's right? Not that's part just of the, the steel dossier. So what we have here is essentially a leaked series of raw contemporaneous intelligence reports that read like a professional in a sense intelligence reports um, that a lot of the information you know tracks with the kind of things we know but we don't know enough about the sources to say whether it's true or not. But but the piece that I try to focus on when I talk about it is not so much, this is not a dossier in the sense that it's a final product where right. this person has put together this thing and this my conclusion is this and this is what it means. Again, it's contemporaneous sort of reports of what, is, what sources are saying. Where it's interest to the United States government is potentially is that it's a, it's a narrative, it's a jumping off point for investigators. So when someone says, is it real or not real, that's almost the wrong question. It, is, the is there enough information there where professional investigators can look at phone records, travel records, uh, other intelligence, can go back to other intelligence and police services to collect information around the edges to put it in context and s determine which pieces might be true and which pieces might not be true. 
that's where the value is. And so that's where the Mueller team, right. I would assume, or the FBI team, when there's a snippet in there about some meeting that happened, something, that's enough information to start querying, you know, colleagues and information and NSA information to try to see whether that makes sense or not. And that first step would be, like you mentioned before, asset validation or source validation, right? The idea is who are these people right. talking to steal? Because if you if they're, because they're, they're written in the reports as Russian right. intelligence professional right. or someone close to someone. I mean, Which that, means nothing right. to anybody but the one piece we don't know and there's some reporting suggesting that the FBI took it serious enough that they went to Steele and started to work with Steele. So that's where that would happen, hopefully, or hopefully, it, you know, in a professional sense, is they would they would say to him, okay, tell us about these sources. Who is source A? Who is source B? The U.S. government may have information on these people. The British government may have information on these people. So that's where that validation piece would take place. We as citizens who just read the report can't do that. Right. But professional investigators can. We'll have more on this in just one minute, but let me take a moment to tell you about ZipRecruiter. As I've told you before, ZipRecruiter is a company that was founded by a group of guys who worked in the tech industry and with startups and realized the absolute worst thing about running an organization was the process of hiring people. But what if hiring could be easier, more streamlined, and less time-consuming? So even when you're busy, you could still be smart about the way you hire. ZipRecruiter is the smartest way to hire. With ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards with just one click. So you can rest easy knowing your job is being seen by the right candidates. Then, ZipRecruiter puts its smart matching technology to work, actively notifying qualified candidates about your job within minutes of posting, so you receive the best possible matches. That's why ZipRecruiter is different. Unlike other hiring sites, ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on the right candidates finding you. It finds them. And look, this is a really cool concept. You can even get a head start on the interview process by adding screening questions to your job post to help identify the most qualified candidates. So you don't have to waste time sorting through a stack of resumes to find the perfect fit. No wonder 80% of employers who post jobs on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. And the easy-to-use ZipRecruiter dashboard lets you manage your hiring process from start to finish all in one place. So find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by growing businesses of all sizes and industries to find the most qualified job candidates with immediate results. And right now, our listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash SpyCast. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash SpyCast. One more time to try it for free, go to ZipRecruiter.com slash SpyCast. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. So a lot of the things written in the report have become, I don't want to say validated because I'm not going to get ahead of myself, but have become... <laughs> backed up in certain respects in public, whether it's the Donald Jr. meeting and some of the other ones, since the report actually was written. Right. So I, to me, Steele could either have you know, made everything up and guessed at all these events that would be somewhat verified later on. Almost impossible. Or, yeah, almost impossible. I mean, probability-wise, that's, that's <laughs> difficult. Um, or, or there's a there there. But my problem is, and this is where I'll, I'll be a little bit uh, devil's advocate, is... How in the world is an ex-MI6 officer in a private company developing so many quality sources inside Russia with direct access to discussions happening at the highest levels yeah. at the Pentagon? That, to me, right. you know, seems problematic, right? I mean, it, it, why don't we have those sources? Why don't the British <laughs> right. intelligence service have those sources? Because they're talking about what Putin wanted to do and what he ordered, and that, that 
that seems like it deserves some serious skepticism. Absolutely. That's, that's the part that's hardest for me. The, the notion that the Russians would be would track and be interested in somebody like Donald Trump or, or his people over the years, as someone who might be investing in Russia and as a known figure, that, that sounds real to me. That seems to make sense. The part that when I first read it was like, I got, you know, we worked for years to try to get someone who could tell us, you know, what the top people in the, in the Kremlin are saying to each other. That part looks to me less real. That, or that, if that's where the source validation would come in, like, that sounds like the kind of information that would be what journalists report, that it's like somebody heard from somebody who heard from somebody that this right. is what's being happened in the Kremlin, right? Whereas a professional intelligence you know, service would want to actually have a source there that's reporting specifically on what's being said and can then take questions on that so that we can be sure of it. That's, that, that's where skepticism should be happening. I mean, really... Discussions in the Kremlin, right. you know, we kill for that kind of information, and so that that's the part that, that worries me. Um, I didn't, you know, I have a regular job, so I didn't <laughs> go through like looking at trying to look at each one of those sources and see which ones seem more credible than the others in the Steele dossier. Because clearly, if you're looking at this as a professional, you're going to put more more credence in some sources than other sources, and those would be the ones I'd be most skeptical of. Is there a potential issue that this does fit the MO of Russian intelligence to a T? If you were going to write a fake dossier, mm -hmm. wouldn't you basically write it according to what Russian intelligence operations tend to go? I know this is a circular argument you can never answer, right. but like, what would a fake dossier look like? I think it would look like this, because these are all the things that you as a intelligence officer or anybody else would know the Russians would try to do. That's absolutely, that's absolutely true, and any professor is going to have to look at it that way. The one thing that's a little bit different is, again, it's not a dossier that's a one, it's, it's a series of contemporaneous right. reports, and so each one has to be looked at sort of differently about what was known at the time and what happened subsequently. And, you know, there's enough subsequent information now about Manafort and Page and, and you know, Trump people's relationships in Russia that, that sort of fit you know the what's happened that again they give investigators enough to go after so is the question that this could be a, dis, a disinformation or a deception operation um, I tend to think that it's possible that some of those sources could be it's hard for me to imagine that all of the right. sources are and that um, you know it's hard for me to see what exactly would be the benefit of putting together this elaborate scheme, not knowing what other real stuff is happening that could cause you problems. But this is the thing that, you know, it, there's not, what's interesting about this is there's not enough information for us to really right. understand. There's a lot of information to make us question things and wonder and go back and forth. Um, but there's enough for investigators to, to throw some stuff off the table and then dig into other things. I, whenever I get this question, and I do, in, or when I'm talking to the public or friends or anybody else, it seems to me the ultimate goal of Russian intelligence, whether the dossier is real, whether the elections were fully hacked in one way or another, the kind of disinformation, fake news, Russia today, take everything in its totality, was to create chaos. Mm -hmm. And it's hard not to say mission accomplished <laughs> in that respect. I mean, if Hillary Clinton had been elected president, Instead of Donald Trump, she would have been a weakened president because of Pizzagate and because of the Podesta emails and WikiLeaks and everything else. Right. We're seeing now how weak popular, you know, his popularity now is in the 30s and 
you know, Donald Trump is a, a weakened president because of this, you know, huge, massive scandal of some sort mm-hmm. hanging over his administration. I mean, can it get any better? Right. I mean, it, it seems like arguably this is one of the best covert action, regardless of what it was <laughs> of all time against an, an opponent that you uh, you don't have a means necessarily to combat militarily. This seems to be a nice, interesting way to get at us uh, through other means. Yeah. What's interesting about this is exactly that. That, and you know, if you look at this in its totality, totality, the people to blame are ourselves, really. So essentially, it's our own dysfunction, our own hyperpartisanship, our own splits that the that the Russians are able to take advantage of. Um, again, as a historian, you're you're fully aware that it's very similar to what the Russians have been doing forever. Their effort is to confuse, sow chaos. Um, take advantage of the fissures between Western Europe and the United States. They've been doing it forever. They've been using forgeries. They've been using false stories. They've been using information. It was supercharged because, you know, if there was a counterintelligence failure here on the United States side, it was not understanding the power of Facebook and Twitter and Reddit and all these kind of things and how they could be used. Um, used to be the Russians, if they were trying to put false narrative out there to say the U.S. created AIDS or, right. or you know, these type of things, they would put out a story in some leftist Indian right. N- right. newspaper and hope it would get picked up somewhere, and they would put it in other newspapers and it would hope it would work its way into the West. And This is not a hypothetical. So, this is exactly what no, happened. No, no, no. Exactly right. <laughs> and then, you know, some of these countries that are sort of anti-U.S. anyway would pick up on it and it would gain momentum and they would get it. Nowadays, they can just pay for that ad. They yeah. can just put it into Facebook and, and, and micro-target certain you know, things. They, they saw Black Lives Matter. They saw you know, racist issues. They saw fights over gun rights. These are things that they could, they could just stoke for the sake of stoking, and we played into it and sort of tore into ourselves here. Are they better at us at getting dirty? I mean, the conventional wisdom was that they lost a step or several steps at the end of the Cold War when the mm. KGB was disbanded and the SVR still isn't what they need to be, but the FSB seems to be doing a pretty good job. I mean, are, are they now back? You know, here's the funny thing. So those of us who worked on Russia and worked in Russia for a number of years, this was always our, our, our sort of fight, even in our own bureaucracy. Since the Russians never changed. We changed, and so... You know, those of us who knew about Putin, who knew what the services were doing, who lived in Russia and were followed day in and day out and, and you know, were subject to their dirty games and their uh, tactics, um, we never saw really a, a, a change in how the Russians were doing things. After 9-11, um, we were so f- hyper-focused on terrorism, we thought the rest of the world was sort of focused on it, too. We, you know, it's, it's part of the great thing about being Americans is we're, we have two oceans on either side that protect us. You know, we're, we're, we're a positive people who want to think the best of others. And so, you know, we thought, okay, 9-11 is having terrorism is our thing. That Russia stuff is over now. We can... But Russia never stopped thinking of us as the main enemy. Putin always, you know, kept a concern, you know, and sort of a, an anger at the United States for, you know, its role in Serbia and Yugoslavia and in Libya and in Egypt and, you know, and pushing NATO. These are things that, that personally upset him, you know, the Panama Papers, these kind of things, you know, he's consistently seen the U.S. as an an enemy and consistently tried to create problems. It's very much of a zero sum. Anything that hurts the United States is is good for Russia. That never changed. So some of it is like now we're turning back. We're like, oh, my God, the Russians are doing these things against us. The Russians have been doing these things against us for a long time. 
Um, what happened here again was that it was the hyper partisan nature of our our country, the fact that we're not as focused on the Russians, so it hit. You know, we weren't paying as much attention defensively as much as we were in the past, um, and and the fact that the the Russians, yes, they are good, but this wasn't some monster plot that they they came up with. They have bureaucracies and institutions like we do too. So they got trolls that are doing putting false information and doing trolls. They have people that the the intelligence service has has uh, co-opted to try to just steal as much stuff with cyber attacks against the DNC, against companies, against... Um, they have people that are buying those Facebook ads that are trying to put, you know, take advantage of fissures in our country. Um, they have intelligence collection. They have human sources that are trying to steal from us. There's, so th these things are almost always going on, always against the United States. They almost, in a sense... I would bet that the Russians didn't realize it would come together as effectively yeah. as they did. They had all this stuff sort of going, and then all of a sudden, some you know, if if you if you take any of the collusion steel stuff, is it, is possibly real. It's another one you could say, hey, listen, maybe a lower level part of the, the Russian government was collecting stuff on any American that came, and they were collecting videos and stuff about uh, Trump and his people, and so they had. So one part of the, the Russian intelligence establishment had this information, which was of no great value. Another part hated Hillary Clinton and were collecting stuff on her forever. Another part was, was stealing stuff from the DNC and other places. By June 2016, all of a sudden, your multiple avenues sort of come together, and you're like, hey, you know, actually, if we have this information on Clinton and we have this information on Trump and we have this other data, we put that together... With the other things we have existing going, right. current problem, it's sort of the perfect storm that came together in the summer of 2016, and, and the United States is not defending itself appropriately, or understands the kind of things the Russians are up to. Whereas, you know, in Estonia and Europe and France and those places, Sweden, they they they've lived next to the Russians for longer. They sort of seen this stuff for a long time. They're a little less susceptible to it. We even seeing this, we still don't have the. I mean. Sanctions are having an effect, but not a dramatic, significant effect, and that certain started under the Obama administration. And expelling diplomats doesn't seem to be having the desired mm -hmm. success there. Um, I mean, we could, you know, in cyber, they talk about hacking back when you've been hacked. I mean, there there doesn't seem to be an equitable intelligence operation against the Russians that would have the same kind of impact as changing a U.S. election right. would potentially have. <laughs> right. um, because, you know, Putin will, will win with 97% instead of 99.9% of the vote if we do the same thing. But hey, are there answers here? I mean, what what possibly, and I'm not talking about the political side. I'm not talking about, let's, you know, let's get Trump out of office. I'm not advocating for that. I'm saying in the intelligence world, mm -hmm. like, how do you even the odds a little bit? Because they seem to be playing in the gutters and we're trying to kind of stay above the fray. And you can't combat somebody unless you go down in the gutters with them. That's, I guess, a question we've always had. Yeah. Or the question of do we maintain our ethics and our, our morality and all that. That was the question against Al-Qaeda, mm -hmm. right? Do we string people up on stress, box, stress tables or, or waterboard or because we have to get down in the gutter? Do we have to get in the gutter with the Russians in order to win this intelligence war? Well, the one thing I would say, okay, first of all, I think, I think defending ourselves and, and, and becoming more savvy in the ways of these things is probably the most important thing, right? Hitting them back is not maybe, it may feel good, but that's right. not necessarily going to solve, solve, solve our problems. Um, 
we've never as a country really developed a cyber strategy, you know, a defensive and an offensive strategy. What does cyber deterrence mean in this age? You know, this has been a constant back and forth. There's, there's been good books. Kaplan's book is good about sort of explaining these kind of things. We need to come to terms with that kind of thing. But the one thing I would suggest is that I don't think Putin is as powerful. Like this, some of this narrative plays right to him because it makes him look to his people like he's he's a serious player on the international stage. He's messing with the Americans. It's you know we're we're treating him like he's ten feet tall. Um, he does have a sort of an anemic economy. They don't make much of anything that anybody wants. He a lot of this visceral attack against the U.S. and these type of things are based on. Um, his worries about control in his own country. He worries about what's happened in Ukraine, these, these you know, the color revolutions, what happened in Egypt, you know. You know, Mubarak's the most powerful person in Egypt, boom, one day he's gone. Like, you know, Gaddafi, most powerful, one day right. he's gone. Um, he, he, he runs an Ill- illegitimate political system, and so he has to constantly worry. He has to buy time week by week, month by month, and, and this is all part of that problem. It's, it's you mentioned earlier, sort of the asymmetric value of this, right? Terrorism is an asymmetric warfare stuff. You can't take on the United States military head-on, so you, you you go around the edges and you use terrorism to have an effect where you can't have an effect. These things that the Russians are doing are painful and awful, but they're asymmetric. They're essentially the the tools of a weaker power. You know, you know, they, they don't have the same economic cloud and political cloud and things that we do. It's so, you know, it's sort of a way to cause pain so that we take them seriously and show the respect that they want. So um, I don't think that there's you know, some great offensive cyber attack that we need to do against, against the, the Russians. It's more getting our own house in order, re-strengthening our relationships with, with, our, with our allies. You know, when you look at the economic power of countries that are allied to the United States and the United States and the military power, it's, you know, yes, Putin has good relationship with Syria. All right. Well, that I mean, you know, again, this is all. You know, we're we're in this "woe is me" sort of state. We need to get our house in order. We need to defend against these things, but then we need to keep the pressure on, and we need to work with allies to sort of continue to pressure Russia to, you know, if they're not going to change their ways, to defend ourselves against it. We're, but yeah, you're like you're right. There's no, right. You know, we're not going to hit them with a covert action or mess with their election. It's going to have a, you know discernible effect. I don't well, think. I mean, see, the, the last thing in the world he wants is the strengthening of NATO, which is kind of his ultimate goal, is to weaken it to the point of collapse. And right. exactly what you're talking about there, it's it's strengthening relationships with allies that have been fractured. Well, look at his, you know, what they did, you know, he took Crimea and then he sent sort of, you know, these little green men into Ukraine to create problems in Ukraine. You know, there's an there's a long historical view in Russia that, you know, that, that the countries on their border for, you know, perhaps, you know, realistic defensive concerns you know it's a country it's a big expansive right. country they've never they've been invaded by different in different ways and so they treated their neighbors as either you know vassals or or enemies and so as ukraine started to play footsie with the west the, the, the russians see that as you know in their sphere of interest and very angry about that and we're going to make clear that that it, that it should be more closely tied to russia but by by taking over crimea and and, and creating a sort of a war on the eastern part of ukraine They've ensured that Ukraine in the future is not going to be tied to Russia. They've actually done, yes, in the short term, it's a problem for us. Uh, You know, they look like they're power. It makes him look powerful in Moscow. But if you wanted Ukraine to be a Russian sort of ally or or 
it's not going to be in the future. You know, you can't kill all your their people and then say, hey, you know, be on our side. And boy, is it locked in the Baltics to to being on NATO's side. In no, 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 no. I was in Estonia yeah. you know, yeah. a few weeks ago, in fact. You know, and they they figured out. They know exactly what they need to do. They lived yeah. under Soviet Union. They know the Russians. They know the Russians hack and attack. You know, probably the, the first big cyber attack was against the Estonians. Yeah. that shut down their banking and everything the system. And so they're not they're not naive. They know exactly what they're dealing with. And being part of NATO is sort of the ultimate protection for them. Well, John, I appreciate the time you've taken, yeah. and we really appreciate you talking to us here on SpyCast. Right. My pleasure. Thanks. Anytime. The International Spy Museum is a full 501c3 nonprofit institution. To help support future educational programming, please visit spymuseum.org and click on our Donate Now link at the top of the page. We'd like to thank Movement Watches, Casper, and ZipRecruiter for continuing to support the SpyCast family. Remember, you can get 15% off today with free shipping and free returns by going to movement.com slash spycast. You can get $50 towards any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com slash spycast and using the promo code spycast at checkout and post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. Just go to ziprecruiter.com slash spycast. Thank you, and we'll see you next week.